Encore with Claire O'Brien, arts and entertainment for the Midlands. With the Dean Crow Theatre and Arts Centre Athlone, imagine the possibilities. DeanCrowTheatre.com The postcode lottery that is youth arts provision. Oral history, what is the best way to gather great stories? Old poets, young people and Christmas in February. You're welcome to Encore on Midlands 103, Midlands 103's dedicated arts show and the only one bringing you the absolute best of what's happening in the arts in Leash, Offaly and Westmeath. You can drop a line to encore at midlands103.com and if you're near the phone tonight, 083 30 10 103 is the Lamb Brothers Midlands 103 text line. We start the programme tonight with the Youth Arts Now report, which has just been published and it reveals a highly under-resourced sector with access to provision for youth arts, depending really on where you live. I'm joined on the line now by John O'Brien, who researched the report. He's an arts consultant and researcher and a former director and producer. John, you're very welcome to Encore this evening. Thanks, Claire. Lovely to be here. And lovely to have you. And you're in salubrious setting there in the background. Uh, important things I'm, happening around you. <laughs> I'm currently in, in the stage door of the Abbey waiting to see Damien Dempsey's show tonight. Yeah, and you're very lucky because it's sold out for every single night, not just tonight. Is it sold out? It is sold out, yeah, for every single night and not just the opening night tonight. So uh, enjoy it. Um I'm going to start you with a with a really easy question, John. I know you sure. like this. Tell me what qualifies or is classified as youth arts. That's a really, a really, really hard question. Yeah. Um, and this is one of the challenges the sector faces. Um, you can look at it in a whole range of ways. Um, I think one of the easiest ways is to think about uh, its origins back in in youth work. So for it to be youth, it has to be between the ages of 12 and I think 22. That's what the legislation on young people says. For it to be youth arts, it needs to be happening in a non-formal setting that is outside uh, the formal schooling setting. And it needs to be voluntary in the sense that it's not compulsory for the young people to attend. And it should have some level of educational uh, content and you know, and it should be focused on young people practicing uh, in the arts and also practicing their own art and becoming artists. So it's a really, really complex definition. And complex too in terms of who delivers it. Yes, exactly, because you're going to have um, what we would normally associate with uh, youth arts, your local youth theatre or your, you know, your local youth film club. Um, or perhaps even your, you know, your, your local uh, writing club for young people, mm. um, which can be done usually by people with a background, be delivered by people with a background, usually in youth work, um, and originally from a voluntary perspective, but then it also should really be bringing in uh, practicing artists for the young people to work with. But at the same time, you also have an awful lot of youth work that happens, or art, youth arts work that happens in traditional youth work settings. Um, the National Youth Council of Ireland had a tremendous report, I think it was just, just under two years ago, on the delivery of youth arts in youth work settings, where your youth club might have 
a filmmaking project or a writing project or a visual arts project running for a fixed period of time. Um, so again, who delivers it and who's, who's actually responsible for it, which creates part of the problem because what then happens is lots of different uh, agencies or policymakers or departments go, we could have some of, the, some of that in order to achieve something else. So one of the huge challenges that not just youth arts, but arts in general faces these days is that you have um, people looking, looking at the arts and going, can you solve marginalization for us? Can you solve depression for us? Um, can you solve declining or, or educational standards? Can you, can you fix this for us? Rather than looking at it as a thing that people do, and in the case of, young, of youth arts, a thing that young people do, um, which is to just create art because they need to find a way to deal with themselves and to respond to the world they live in. I hope that, that's a very long <laughs> way of addressing it. No, it's very comprehensive. And one of the things yeah. that struck me reading the report um, is how comprehensive and challenging your, your research must have been to not only to come to the conclusions that you that you have come to, but to be able to say so often, you know, we can't be we can't take this figure as a given because we you know, we're, we don't have all the information that we need, or the figures you can look at them in a particular way, but you need to consider them in a, in a rounder way. So if I maybe throw out two figures to you, a yeah. euro and five cent and thirty three euros ninety nine. <laughs> Will you just give me a kind of a general? I, I know it's just to pick two out of the whole lot, yeah, um, yeah. but but I think just giving those two figures will give a sense of kind of the, the complexity of what you're dealing with and, and, and the overview of the kind of the spend issues. Yeah, the, the, the complexity basically is that it, it's very, because youth arts can be very, very hard to define because it's delivered through a whole range of settings and a whole range of agencies. It's very difficult to get a handle on exactly how much money is being spent on it. Uh, the Arts Council is the most transparent. They have a funding tool called uh, uh, Young People, Children and Education. And that, that will tell you exactly how much was given to exactly what organisation, exactly where and for what. And that's great. Local authorities who also uh, finance the, um, the, the arts and youth arts, it gets more problematic because you ask them, you know, what is your investment in youth arts? And some of them will go, oh, it's this, and they have a very clear definition of what youth arts is. And others go, oh, we think it's this, but it's, it's incorporating lots of other things as well, um, other than what you know, youth arts might be. So to try and get a very clear number is really hard. And also bear in mind the Department of Education is also involved in this. So what we try to do in the report is work backwards from information we, we had to reach a figure. And then we try to work out what the per capita spend was. So if we looked at the young people in each county between the ages of 12 and 22, and then looked at, in the instance of the numbers you're talking about, the combined local authority and arts council spend in that county to try and find out what, how much money was been spent per year on a young person for youth arts. So at one end of the spectrum, you had one county that was spending the one euro and whatever number of cents it was, you said, on a young person per year. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you had another county that was spending the 33 euro plus. 
And in both of those situations, you have the sense that that applies. Those figures apply when you say per capita to every child in that age, every young person in that age group. But as you say yourself, 80 percent of young people in a catch in in an area may not be actively involved. So the numbers are skewed again. Yeah, I mean, we we did make an adjustment for that in, in, in the report. So you could say that, okay, if we take out the 80% who don't participate in youth arts, and that's a, fig- a figure that we can't be kind of cold from the Growing Up in Ireland um, report, you could go, well, actually, per capita, it's a bit more than that. But then you have to ask the question, why is the 80% not participating? Do you know what I mean? Mm. And, you know, are they not participating? Because if you look at, say, 33 euro, um, per head at the high end per annum that's not going to buy an awful lot of youth arts so that level of funding is immediately exclusionary you know for that level to for any one young person to get any kind of value a large number of young people can't get the value because you've got to you've got to bundle together a whole bunch of those 33 euros to you know to create the value for mm. one person so is the 80% who don't participate is that why not? Is that because there's nothing available? Is it because of barriers to access to do with education, to do with distance, to do with geography? What's going on there? Um, and why is it, you know, entirely at random in many cases that you have a situation where at the one end, you know, a county is, a young person is inadequately funded to participate at 33 euro, and at the other end, massively inadequately funded at a euro and a few cents. Mm. When I look Why at the, is that disparity there? Yeah, and when I look, you know, in our when I look at some of the figures, the capital per capita local authority spend, um, and I look at somewhere like Galway, and that's over twenty euros. Um, even Leitrim has a really high. That's about a, yeah. at a tenner. So is Cork City. Um, uh, South Dublin is just under the tenner as well. Yeah. Leash comes in at just over five euros. Uh, Westmead, probably from looking at the graph here, I'd say somewhere around 350-ish. Awfully is a blip. <laughs> okay, there's, there's another, another complexity issue we yeah. have to think here as well. And it's not, it's not really a case of, of, of deliberate underfunding or deliberate indifference. And this is really important. That, like, there's an awful lot of people in local authorities, there's an awful lot of people in the Arts Council doing extraordinary work to try and make this thing work. But there's something about the way we do um, public goods in Ireland that creates the problem. And that is, like, since the foundation of the state, what we've done with things like education, health, caring, welfare, is we've pushed it out we've pushed it back into the voluntary sector. Mm. You know, and we've said, really, people's welfare is the responsibility of themselves, their families, their communities, and their charitable associations. So when you look at a county that's really sort of underfunded, part of the reason it's underfunded is that nobody in the county, or not a large number of people, have invested their own time or their own resources or their own energy over a period, a period of time to make something that will attract some support. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And then, then the other problem with that is even in those counties that do have significant amounts of money, um, that money is not, is not fully supporting what's going on. It's just partially supporting. So the people who are delivering the youth arts, again, 
are providing an awful lot of talent, time, energy, resources, uh, emotional labor. Just I mean, working with young people is demanding, yeah. um, you know, completely off their own bat. Well, I, uh, this is massive, massive uh, uh, voluntary investment in, yeah. in the infrastructure of the state. And admirable. When we look then at the Arts Council, we add that in, um, which becomes an orange blip uh, on top of the blue blip that is the, the local authority funding. We look at somewhere again like Galway and their 20 euros in total moves up to closer to 60. It's extreme. Uh, Cork City again, well up over 20. Uh, Dublin City, uh, close to 20. Uh, Kilkenny is up, is up quite high. Um, I, I don't see any Thing in the lead, this is for 2019. Mm-hmm. I don't see yeah. any reference here to Arts Council f- funding for Leash. A tiny, tiny little um, dusting of icing in um, County Offaly and uh, a little bit more yeah. in Westmeath. Mm-hmm. Actually, none at all in Westmeath either. Um, yeah. Are, are we again back to that situation where we're relying on people who have the know-how, the skills, yeah. the maybe the find, maybe the people who are in full-time arts jobs for young people, you know, which we kind of expect maybe in Galway, um, who are able to draw down that funding and put in the applications and take the time uh, to yeah. keep the money coming in? Yeah, is is there mean, a problem then in the way that the Arts Council is awarding money? That it's whoever has the best and and most available staff uh, to do that is more likely I, to get it. I, I think it would be really easy to, to point a finger and go, is there a problem with the Arts Council and the way they're allocating it? But I, I genuinely think that the Arts Council and the local authority arts officers, and people who look at the Arts Council don't think this, they are massively under-resourced. They are, yeah. Um, and local authority arts offices are, are massively, massively under-resourced. They're doing the best they can with what they have. So it's not for the Arts Council to look, to look at, at under the way the funding system works in this country. Uh, and this is not just for you know, youth arts or the arts. It's, it's around a whole range of things. It's, it's not for the Arts Council to go, to go, oh, look, there's a massive deficiency of fund. We're not giving any money over here. We must instigate something here. Mm-hmm. They have to wait for something to happen in that county. Okay. So we're back to the you volunteers know. again in, in a large... Yeah. 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 Um, so so you're, finally... You're waiting for the person to, to start the youth theatre yeah. or the youth film club or the, the visual art club to give their time. And they have to give their time over several years to prove that what they're doing is sustainable. So again, it's a massive investment of time, energy, effort. So I suppose if there is a message to take, yeah, if there's, if there's a message to take from it, then finally, John, it is, you know, if, if, if your heart isn't doing something for youth arts, you know, get behind it, get the support behind you, because once you do that, something more will come. But without that kern there at the start, there is not going to be, the acorn is not going to grow. No one's going to do it under the present system. No one's going to do it for you, which I, which yeah. I think is one of the, the, the and I think this is kind of, this, this afflicts a whole range of areas in this country, health, heritage, education, everywhere. And it's becoming an increasing problem, um, which is why I think that really what the youth arts sector needs to do is it needs to, to gather itself together and go, how do we roll this thing out? How, how do we make it work nationwide for, for everybody on a universal access model? 
And the only people who can design that solution, in my opinion, are the people who are actually currently delivering. So they've got to create the policy and they've got to come together and they've got to create what the funding structure should look like. John O'Brien, it is a fascinating, fascinating, and as you say, complex uh, complex mm. report where the figures all all need to be looked at in different contexts. But thank you so much for doing it. Thanks a million for talking to us about no, it on you. the programme. Enjoy, Damien Dempsey. Um, and we sh- we'll, we'll talk to you again. John O'Brien, right, um, arts consultant and researcher, thank you for talking to us this evening on Encore. Uh, that is absolutely fascinating. And um, we might pop up a link to that report uh, when we're popping up the podcast because it is really fascinating and very well worth your while. Still to come on the show, uh, we'll be talking about oral history. Have you ever thought about gathering oral histories? How would you go about doing it? And who can you contact to learn a little bit more about that? That's still to come on the programme. But, but now we are going to go all the way back to what should have gone out on the 22nd of December. And uh, in December... I put out a call to uh, some of the schools in the communities uh, around Leash Offley and Westmeath, asking them to prepare something that we would put out on the twi- the show on the 22nd of December. And unfortunately, I ended up uh, with COVID for Christmas and we didn't have a programme on the 22nd of September. Um, I was in bed and the, all the pre-records stayed there. And I thought about maybe, you know, that maybe the timing wasn't great to do them after in January and coming into February. But one of them I do particularly want to do because I had three phenomenal young women from um, Oakland's college who came in and they had prepared kind of a podcast piece about looking forward to Christmas and but particularly around a poem and uh, poems are timeless. So I'm going to introduce you to Ashling, Anna and Lauren and the fine piece of work that they prepared around Patrick Kavanagh's uh, Christmas childhood. And I think you'll forgive all of us uh, for the timing closer to Valentine's Day. But sure, here we are. When we were talking about what we could bring to the show today around the theme of Christmas, we thought it would be a good idea to talk about what we look forward to at Christmas. So many ideas came up that it was difficult to simplify them and it made us think, how simple is Christmas? It is, after all, considered the time of year to relax, unwind, celebrate family, friends, the simple things. But have we lost that simplicity and magic? This puts us in mind of lots of things, but in particular we fell to talking about the simplicity of Christmas and we happened to end up chatting about the poet Patrick Kavanagh and his poem A Christmas Childhood. Then we were thinking about how Christmas has changed and a big part of Christmas today is obviously the media. It's everywhere. From the 1st of November, the second Halloween is over, the shops fill with decorations and our TVs are flooded with Christmas ads. There is a real buzz as we wait for these ads to come out and Christmas radio to start. I know I love watching Christmas movies with my family. How about you, Ashling? Yeah, I love Christmas. My favourite Christmas movie is Home Alone. But our parents or even our grandparents' experience probably would have been quite different. Important things about Christmas then would have been things like art, music, stories and poems. It was less about the media and the business side of things and maybe more so about the Christmas spirit and magic. So, even though our Christmas is full with the media, we are going to talk about something as simple as a poem. We came across the poem A Christmas Childhood by Patrick Kavanagh. In this poem, we think he really captures the magic of Christmas and how that innocence is lost as we grow older. This is something we've all experienced, and this poem reminds us to remember that magic and just how important it is. Thanks, Anna. This is a poem called A Christmas Childhood by Patrick Kavanagh. One side of the potato pits was white with frost. How wonderful that was. How wonderful. And when we put our ears to the paling post, the music that came out was magical. 
The light between the ricks of hay and straw was a hole in heaven's gable. An apple tree with its December glinting fruit we saw. Oh, you Eve were the world that tempted me. To eat the knowledge that grew in clay and death the germ within it. Now and then, I can remember something of the gay garden that was childhood's. Again, the tracks of cattle to a drinking place, a green stone lying sideways in a ditch, or any common sight, the transfigured face of a beauty that the world did not touch. My father played the melodeon outside our gate. There were stars in the morning east and they danced to his music. Across the wild bogs his melodeon called to Lennons and Callans. As I pulled on my trousers in a hurry, I knew some strange thing had happened. Outside in the cow house my mother made the music of milking, the light of her stable lamp was a star, and the frost of Bethlehem made a twinkle. A water hen screeched in the bog, mass going feet, crunched the wafer ice on the potholes. Somebody wistfully twisted the bellows wheel. My child poet picked out the letters on the greystone, in silver the wonder of a Christmas townland, the winking glitter of a frosty dawn. Cassiopeia was over Cassidy's hanging hill. I looked, and three whin bushes rode across the horizon, the three wise kings. An old man passing said, Can't he make it talk, the melodeon? I hid in the doorway and tightened the belt of my box-pleated coat. I nicked six nicks on the doorpost with my penknife's big blade. There was a little one for cutting tobacco and I was six Christmases of age. My father played the melodeon, my mother milked the cows and I had a prayer like a white rose pinned on the Virgin Mary's blouse. Thanks, Ashling, for the reading of the poem. In this poem, the poet gets flashbacks to his childhood Christmas when he was six years old. I know when I was six, I would get so excited about Christmas. It was magical. What about you, Lauren? Yeah, I know I would. These flashbacks are triggered by certain things he sees, hears and feels. He describes how children notice things adults don't. We tend to look at the bigger picture, but for kids, the ordinary is extraordinary. They have so much curiosity. Such as when he saw one side of the potato pits was white with frost. How wonderful that was, how wonderful. We can feel the wonder and excitement from these lines and it puts a smile on my face when the poet appreciates something so simple. Imagine if we saw potatoes covered in frost today. We probably wouldn't even notice. But that innocence becomes lost in all of us. As Kavanaugh said, Oh, you Eve were the world that tempted me. Something that was once so magical is no longer. But the thing is that magic is still there. But the beauty of it is change as innocence is lost. As Kavanaugh said, Or any common sight, the transfigured face of a beauty that the world did not touch. I know myself I never really thought about how magic is lost as we grow older and lose our innocence. But when I read this poem, I thought, wow, I want that childlike curiosity and innocence back. Like, why can't it be as magical as it once was? Did either of you feel like that too? Oh, yeah. So even though the Christmas Kavanaugh talks about doesn't quite resemble our own, I can definitely see a lot that is the same. I suppose a good line to end on is one that we can all relate to. Or any common sight, the transfigured face of a beauty that the world did not touch. Here Kavanaugh says how magic can be found everywhere, no matter what age or how cool you think you are, it's there. You just need to look a little harder, maybe tilt your head a little. Hopefully we've reminded you of the magic you once felt and you can feel again, because trust me, it's there. The magic is most certainly there and Ashling, Anna and Lauren came in here and they recorded uh, not just that piece, but we had, a lo- we had a great chat. We laughed a lot in the news booth when we did that recording just before Christmas and it would have been wonderful Uh, to be able to bring that to you. And if I hadn't been flat on my back in the bed with COVID, we would have done that on the 22nd of December. But hopefully we'll get them back again um, next year, later on in the year, because I know they are 
three powerful young women uh, with lots to say. Uh, should also give a big shout out to their teacher at Oaklands Community College in Edenderry and that is Hazel Weir or Hazel Cullen as she's often known um, and well done and thank you to all of them for the wonderful work that they did to bring a little bit of Christmas to us before Christmas and now here in February. You're listening to Encore on Midlands 103 and a little bit later on the programme we'll be picking up a little bit on a story that we covered last week. We had um, a special programme on 10 years of the Lewin Gallery and a couple of lines that didn't make it into the hour that we gave the gave the event last year or last week uh, was a little bit about what can we expect from the Lewin Gallery in the next 10 years and we'll hear from manager Carmel Duffy on that. But in the meantime, if you are free on Saturday the 18th of February between 10 o'clock in the morning and half past 12, you might really be interested in a virtual workshop called Oral History Basics Basics, and it is being run by the Oral History Network of Ireland. I'm joined on the line by Liz Kiley and Liz is their training officer. Liz, you're very welcome to Encore this evening. Thank you, Claire. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it's lovely to have you. And I know there's going to be lots of interest in this. Um, and Westmeath County Council and their, their heritage officer are very keen to get the message out um, about the workshop. But tell me a little bit first about, first of all, about the organisation. What is the Oral History Network of Ireland and how long have you been on the scene? Well, the Oral History Network of Ireland was established in 2010 Regina Fitzpatrick, who is actually the Heritage Officer in Kilkenny, was one of the founding members. And it was launched after a conference that was held in Limerick. And I think it was just a group of individuals, some were academics, but also um, people interested in folklore, in community work, um, in various kinds of oral history projects. They got together and thought, wouldn't it be a good idea to provide a network of support and training for people who are interested in doing oral history work throughout Ireland? So I think you got involved in the organisation because you were interested in an oral history project yourself. That's correct. Um, Over the years, I was on the fringes of the organisation at various points. I would have presented at some of their conferences and I would have attended some of their networking events. Um, I did an oral history project with some colleagues in University College Cork. I'm a lecturer there in social science. And our project was focused on women's work in the um, southern counties of Cork, Limerick and Kerry. So we interviewed women about their working lives in the 40s and 50s. And they, they those interviews then um, were put into the Digital Repository of Ireland. So they're available now to be listened to by family members of those women, but also um, people who are just generally interested in women's work in Ireland during the, um, you know, the 1940s and 50s. And can I ask you then, what makes a topic that is suitable for an oral history project? Well, Oral history is very broad and there are, you know, a huge diversity of topics that I suppose can be covered through a kind of oral history methodology. Um, when you look at the Oral History Network's um, website, you can see how people have conducted oral histories on all different aspects of Irish life. For example, there are topics there pertaining to Irish music and migration. Our own project on women's work is focused um, on in on the website, there is a project about the Dublin Jewish um, community, 
Um, also, we did training with Simon, who did um, an oral history project um, as well. And Clue with a Social History um, Association are also planning to do an oral history project. So I suppose really it's it's generated from people's own interests. Um, I'm hoping, well, I'm currently involved in gathering stories about magic in, in 21st century Ireland, um, all dimensions of that, you know, haunted houses, practice of witchcraft, anything at all pertaining to magic as it was practiced in Ireland. Um, but, you know, it largely depends on what, what interests people. And for very many people living in communities, it's their own kind of parish stories, their own stories about life in the community, um, you know, and very often, you know, the topics are just completely varied. Um, it has to be historic in focus, but other than that, it can really focus, I think, on any topic at all. And what makes it historic? When do, when do we draw the line there? Well, I suppose there's no hard and fast rules, but generally we're talking about people remembering and people looking back and retrospectively thinking about things and we're engaging them in a conversation about experiences that they've had in life um, very often. Um, and, you know, that's that's really it, I think. Um, so it's living memory, you know, really. Living memory. And I suppose it really helps when people are prepared to talk about that. And it's really a co-creation between the interviewer and the interviewee in that moment in time. And I suppose it's very often afterwards that we think, uh, you know, of the value of those stories, particularly when people maybe have passed away, but also in terms of handing them down to uh, another generation, you know. Otherwise, a lot of those stories get lost if they're not recorded and if they're not kept, Mm. for example. Yeah, it's something that we often hear people lament, isn't it? You described um, the work as being a co-creation between the person asking the question and the person giving the answers. And I suppose if if you're going to put in that time on both sides, you really want to go about it in the best way possible. And that is what this uh, workshop on the basics of oral history is about. What's covered in that and really who is that event for? Well, to say, first of all, I suppose that the Oral History Network provides a lot of different kinds of trainings on all different aspects of oral history. And as the year progresses, we'll be delving into further areas. So we, you know, have more specific workshops on things like the ethical issues pertaining to oral history work or how to do a good oral history interview. But the one on the 18th of February is on the basics of oral history. So it doesn't assume any prior knowledge on the part of people who participate in that workshop. Generally, just an interest maybe in conducting their own oral history project. They have they don't need to have started any work on it. And basically, I suppose what we would hope is that as a result of that workshop, people would have a better understanding of what oral history is and its significance and importance. And that also, I suppose, they would have the basics of how to conduct a good oral history interview. They would have a sense of the kind of ethical and legal issues that are involved that they might need to think about before they start interviewing people. And also, they would need to think a little bit about, you know, what are their planned outputs? What do they want to result from their project? 
So they'd be the different kind of areas we'd cover um, and we can provide advice, for example, on recording equipment that people might use, you know, and how to do a good interview and, you know, how to plan a project. They'd be the key areas that we cover in the workshop. Yeah. So that's the kind of a a getting started, kind of a one stop, get yourself organised, have your basic skills ready uh, before you you fully embark on the project, but on all the steps along the way, then afterwards, th- there's more support that is available then through the oral history network. Yeah, that's true, Claire. Um, when you look at the network's website, we have a calendar of events, and we have informal network evenings, um, and anybody can come along to those once they're joined up members. And really, they're very informal. We just have a chat about, you know, what we're doing in our own projects, what issues are coming up for people. We share ideas about how to address those issues. And it's really just a very, you know, informal evening, very enjoyable. But equally, then we provide further trainings during the year. One or two of those would be face to face, for example, but many of them would be online. So we're finding of late that as we you know, pivoted after, you know, after COVID to online training, we're also getting people from outside of Ireland who are attending some of our trainings as well, which is great. And I suppose when we think about oral history and we think about living memory, there are, you know, we're all seeing it in our communities now, how older people, um, or people maybe who had been a little bit careful maybe uh, the last little while are out and about in the community a bit more, um, they may be very interested in getting involved in some something like this or the people who miss seeing them around um, and are glad to see them back out and about again. People of all ages, I suppose, um, would be very glad to be part of something like this. Exactly. Um, you know, apart from historians and students who do some oral history work, you know, there's local historians, for example, and people who are just generally involved in their community who want to do oral history work. Generally, we see it as something that really is appealing to older people in their communities. Also, I suppose, organisations in in the communities, you know, that decide maybe they want, for example, to record their history and to be able to pass it on or to be able to keep it um, and to make it accessible to others. Um, you know, all of those different kinds of groups and organisations and individuals are interested in oral history work. And as you say, this is the ideal time. It would have been difficult to do any kind of field work for the last few years. But now I think you're right that people are, you know, getting back um, into involved into, in their communities. And we're finding that our numbers are increasing as well in terms of participating in the events that we're having or in the training that we're offering. And as you mentioned, they're all available. All the details for this particular course and all the other ones that you run are available on oralhistorynetworkireland.ie. Liz, thank you so much for talking to us this evening on Encore. Really appreciate it. No problem at all, Claire. It was very nice to talk to you too. And a pleasure to talk to you indeed. That is Liz Kiley and she's the training officer with the Oral History Network of Ireland. So I have one more little piece of audio to play for you. And if you were listening to the programme last last week, and I know many of you were because you got a lot of really good feedback about how much you enjoyed hearing the story of the Lewin Gallery 10 years on from its uh, its opening in Athlone in County Westmeath. And we spoke to three of the artists who are working there, who have, have work in the exhibition that finished up just this weekend. Um, but 
we didn't really look forward to what the future of the Lewin Gallery would be. A uh, long chat with Carmel Duffy and I did ask her the question, but I didn't get to bring it to you last week. So Carmel is the manager of the Lewin Gallery and this is what she had to say about the future where she sees the Lewin Gallery in 10 years' time. Take us finally then 10 years down the line. Where do you see the Lewin Gallery changing, developing, adapting, fitting in, moulding itself and moulding the community around it over the next decade? Well, first of all, there's the immediate changes that we see coming very quickly along the track. Um, everybody who has been in Athlone recently will know that there is a pedestrian bridge under construction, um, which is actually... Um, right beside Loom Gallery, right in front of Loom Gallery, the cycleway um, as the pedestrians or cyclists uh, come off the bridge is alongside the boardwalk in front of the gallery. So straight away we're looking at capturing different audiences um, and in order to do that we're going to look at maybe different product and service offerings in the gallery. Uh, We're also looking at a retail space uh, we're looking at developing our artist supports program. We're looking at rolling out um, more extensive outreach. Um, as I said earlier, we're looking at really focusing on solo exhibitions for artists. We've always had within our remit, um, you know, the uh, looking at supporting professional artist development in Westmead, and we will continue to do that. But we also really want to grow and develop the, ga- the gallery's audiences and to encor- encourage more people from cities and around the country to visit Athlone, not just, you know, uh, to visit the gallery when they're popping into Athlone or passing by, but to actually come to Athlone to visit Lewin Gallery and see the exhibitions of artists that we have in situ. Um, as part of the next phase, of our development, uh, we'll be launching a new website early next year. We're also going to be publishing um, a five-year strategy uh, before the end of next year as well, and that will inform the development works of the gallery over the course of the next five years. We'll align closely also with national policies, the Arts Council policies, and indeed uh, Westmead County Council's uh, policies and plans for the arts over the next five to ten year period. And as that loan continues to develop as a tourist uh, destination, um, we're lucky now to be included and located in a growing uh, region, Ireland's Hidden Heartlands. So we'll work closely with Falch Ireland as well on future developments um, always looking at improving, constantly improving. But I suppose the crux and the core of our service and our remit is to support arts and to make arts accessible to our audiences. And our audiences are primarily based in Athlone and the surrounding counties here in the Midlands. Um, And we want to make sure that we are accessible to everybody, including our new communities uh, living in Athlone, And we're trying to do that by programming different types of outreach that will appeal to them. And indeed, looking at, you know, 
the programming of our exhibitions as well and our programming panel. We tease those kind of things out all the time. Are we appealing to all the audiences that we want uh, to come into the doors of the gallery? So lots of exciting things ahead, Claire. Lots of exciting things ahead indeed. And two things in particular that are exciting. One of them is in Athlone, which is the next exhibition exhibition there. It is called At the Gates of Silent Memory. It's by the internationally acclaimed Irish artist Claire Langan and it opens on the 18th of February at 2.45 with a talk by Mary McCarthy of Croft, the Cork's Crawford Gallery. The second exciting thing for you and for me and for my guest in the studio, with, I mean, I just have a second, uh, is Shannon Fogarty who's going to be taking over the hot seat because I'm taking a little encore sabbatical for a little while. Shannon, you are so, welcome. Let me get a voice, a, a mic Thank for you. you. Yes. Welcome to Encore. I know. I'm so excited. I can't wait for this. Yeah, you're going to be fantastic. It'll be terrific to have you here in the seat. Thank you. Keeping an eye on things. And you're the voice that everybody will be hearing now for the next the next five or six months. It'll be fantastic. And I hope they like my voice. Look, how could they not? How could they not? Uh, the next voice that people are going to hear on Midlands 103 will be Joe Cooney's. He is up after the break. Shannon will be in the hot seat next week on Encore. Take care of yourself. Good night.